Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. We continue today in our series on the book of Habakkuk called God and the Problem of Evil. So let's turn in our Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 to 11, with a message entitled, The Surprising Work of God. I wonder if you've ever seen a t-shirt or a bumper sticker which says, question everything. You know, I've always wanted to stop the person wearing that t-shirt and ask him whether that includes questioning that slogan. Is it possible to challenge every authority and every answer and every forward path so that in the end, all you're left with is questions and no answers, no direction, no meaning, and no purpose? Well, truth be known, it is important to question things. At times, I've marveled how easily we're going to accept some things, well, because it's said with a passion or because it reflects the prevailing mood of the time. Without questioning, we become nothing more than gullible. We take one person's word for something without carefully investigating whether they're saying something that's actually true. And so I think that questioning and asking for answers is not negative. No, it is necessary if we're going to learn the truth. But when we question things, we must be aware of how it is that we question things. Some of us are averse to authority, and so anything that demands our submission or the realization that we've been wrong or the necessity of worship is rejected. And that's not because there are no answers, but because we reject the demands which truth places upon our lives. You see, truth requires that we change. Truth takes away my free choice to continue to walk in darkness. John 3 verse 20 says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. And in the end, the search for answers always includes a moral element. For while we will not submit to God, all truth is merely a labyrinth of deception upon deception. So we've encountered Habakkuk, and we've seen the the times in which he lived and the questions that he has asked. Habakkuk's time was a time period in which evil seemed to have been gaining the upper hand, and his question to God can be boiled down into one statement that he makes. Why do you look idly at wrong? Why does it seem to me that as violence and law-breaking are on the upswing, and the rich, powerful elite are grinding up their opponents at will, and still you seem to be doing nothing? And so Habakkuk has spoken, but we have not yet come to the answer. In today's text, we're going to hear the answer. I'm reading Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 to 11. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence and all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Now Habakkuk has asked a question. God, why don't you do something? And God has now given his answer. But what does it mean? Well, for starters, please notice how wrong Habakkuk has been. 
He has convinced himself that God simply looks on idly as evil is allowed to go forward, that God has taken no notice that violent men have had their way and subverted an entire population. In response, God says, Habakkuk, you'll have to look more carefully. So let's read the first part of verse 5 again. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. See, what's amazing about this initial response is that God is implying that Habakkuk, who you'll remember is a temple prophet, should have access to some of his own answers. He should have been aware of what God has already said through some of the other prophets that have gone before him. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But for now, would you and I just acknowledge for the moment that for many of us, we have never thought to see the activity of the nations and come to the realization that right now, globally, God is at work. All we need to do is allow Scripture to inform us and then through that lens to open up our eyes and see what God is indeed doing today. So here at the beginning of the point, Habakkuk will have to look more closely if he is to see the hand of God. Now, having made that point, God now moves Habakkuk to his second insight. When God answers, he warns the prophet that he's going to be surprised. I'm rereading verses 5b to 6a. For I've been doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. You know, for those of us who know our Bible well, this answer is not at all unexpected. So much of the Old Testament is taken up in Babylon the end of 2 Kings, the end of 2 Chronicles, part of Isaiah, all of Jeremiah, the whole book of Daniel, the entire book of Ezekiel, and probably the book of Obadiah, as well as the books of Nahum, Zephaniah, and of course Habakkuk. A great big chunk of the Bible is meant to explain the Babylon phenomenon. Psalm 137 begins, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Babylon was the nation that utterly defeated Israel, burned her sacred temple to the ground, and deported her population from the land promised to Abraham, and then placed them in the land of bondage. Babylon is central to the entire Old Testament drama. But in Habakkuk's day, this this drama is only beginning. Babylon's rise would startle the entire Middle East. I mean, nation after nation would soon fall to her, and it would not be long until this nation would stand at the gates of Jerusalem. The rise of Babylon would soon eclipse the horizon, and very soon all that one could see and talk about was Babylon. But that was yet in the future. And yet, even though it was in the future, if Habakkuk had been paying attention, he would have known this, and he would have been less surprised. He might have remembered that Assyria, that that feared empire, which Babylon had now only so recently defeated, was initially called into existence by God. Isaiah had said that in chapter 10, verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands, is my fury. In other words, the wicked nation of Assyria was inadvertently doing God's work. And the prophet Zephaniah would say the same thing in Zephaniah 2, verse 13. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. And so once Assyria had played out God's purposes, God would punish her for her evil. And now in the book of Habakkuk, God tells us how it is that Assyria will come to an end. It will happen at the hands of Babylon. We know that in Habakkuk's day, Babylon had already gained independence from Assyria. 
Now war was on the way, and in, in battle, Babylon would destroy Nineveh, and then in 605 BC, they would crush the Egyptian army at the Battle of Carchemish on the Euphrates River, effectively ending Egyptian greatness for all time. This, says God, is what I'm doing. I've raised up the Babylonians to punish nations. Now, here's the bad news. God is saying, I'm raising them up to punish Judah as well. Indeed, in 586, about 20 years after God spoke to Habakkuk, the Babylonians arrived at Jerusalem and broke down its walls and killed its citizens and deported who was left and burned the city to the ground. That, says God, is what I'm doing about the evil that's happening in the city of Jerusalem. And so as we work our way through God's answer to Habakkuk, we read of God's description of Babylon. The nation is bitter, meaning that it takes any slight to itself very seriously. The nation is hasty, meaning that it never waits to punish her adversaries. The nation seizes dwellings not her own, meaning that they have very little respect for that which does not belong to them. But as God is describing the Babylonians, we, we need to keep in mind he's not describing them in some academic way. He's describing Babylon in order to answer Habakkuk's question about how it is that God seems to be doing nothing about all that injustice that's going on in Judah right now. How is it, asked Habakkuk, that you allow the wicked in Jerusalem to carry on in unrighteousness? And this is God's answer. And says God, my answer to your question is going to terrify you. Indeed, the answer that Habakkuk got meant that God was indeed going to answer the prayers of the righteous. It turns out that God was never looking idly on. What had been happening in what is now called Iraq was God's answer. And that is what grips us about this book. God never looks idly at evil. Yes, he does give men and women time to repent, but if they refuse, God will and does act in ways that are so much larger than we had ever imagined. No one ever gets away with evil. Lorraine wrote, Listening to Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again starts my day off right. It amazes me how God's love reaches into my life daily through these programs. God's Word is so precious. I also get a real lift from Laugh Again with Phil. Sometimes I just need that chuckle to help get me through the day. Lorraine, thank you. Your encouragement lets us know lives are being touched and the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are making a difference. Has your life been impacted by the Word of God and the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada? With your consistent support as a monthly partner or because of your gift today, the good news is being shared across our nation. To join in the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again or In Doubt, call us with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Look at how God describes Babylon. In Habakkuk 1 verse 6, he says they are bitter and hasty. This refers to the fact that they are utterly ruthless. Now, now that we have the light of history, how ruthless were they? We know that Zedekiah was king in Jerusalem when the Babylonians came to destroy the city. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, captured Zedekiah, had his son slaughtered in front of him, and then gouged out Zedekiah's eyes so that the last sight the king would ever see was the cruel death of his family. You see, this was an aggressive nation. Verse 7 says that they are dreaded and fearsome. 
The news that they were coming would strike sheer terror into anyone's heart. They were completely unprincipled, making up their own rules as they went along. Verse 8 says that when they came, they would strike quickly. In real terms, we know that they introduced a new form of warfare into the Middle East never seen before. They brought precision and efficiency to their killing machine. No one knew how to stop them. They simply watched helplessly as this war machine gobbled up one nation after another. Verse 9 tells us they came with faces forward. It's a sheer frontal attack. I mean, they win not with stealth, but with sheer raw power. The fact that their faces are forward means that they never retreat. They always have the advantage. Their power is so great, all they have to do is keep pushing forward. Verse 10 says that they have contempt for their enemies. They scoff at kings. They find walled fortresses a cause for their most obscene humor. They simply set up an earthen ramp as high as a wall, and then the wall ends up being to the advantage of the Babylonians. That's because what they do when they're on the wall is that they use the wall to shoot into the city below. Verse 11 says that after they've destroyed a nation, they never think of them again. That nation actually meant nothing to them. You think about that. Whoever begs for mercy is quickly dispatched, and in short order, they never even remember the sufferings of others. Now, that is God's answer to the question of why he isn't doing something. He is doing something. He's raising up the Babylonians. You know, occasionally when I point out from Scripture that God causes calamity, someone will send me a note saying that I'm teaching that God is the author of evil. But I'm not saying that at all. The evil that the Babylonians did came about because they were evil people. But here's the point. God could have stopped them in their tracks, but he doesn't. And why? Well, one of the reasons why is that the sins of Judah had become so pronounced, it was time for judgment, and God had appointed Babylon to carry out that judgment. Now then, what conclusion shall we come to from what we've studied so far? Well, first, we learn that God rules over all. I mean, that's the point of this entire story. Do you remember when God promised Canaan to Abraham and then said to him, I'm not going to give it to you right now. Do you remember why? Well, Genesis 15, verses 13 to 16 says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And as for you yourself... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Note this, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, God brings judgment upon people in the time he chooses, not a moment too soon and not a moment too late, but exactly on time. It was Professor Bruce Waltke who said, the wheels of God's justice move ever so slowly but they grind so exceedingly fine. And the point is, no one will ever get away with anything, but will be judged on God's timetable and not on ours. That's how God rules. But there's a second conclusion, and we must also consider that. Our God not only rules over all, he also rules over evil. Even evil must submit to him. Now, this is the part that has confused so many. Now, you're going to have to find a place to write this down, for I'm going to give you five ways in which he does that. Number one, God permits evil. Acts 14, verse 16 says, In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. 
There's an allowance that God has that permits evil to exist for a time. He does not interrupt it, at least for a time. He allows it to increase. He lets wicked people to have their own way. He does so within his sovereign rule. Secondly, God punishes evil with evil. And that's what Habakkuk and many of the prophets say in the Old Testament. Consider, for instance, Psalm 81, verses 11 to 12. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. And Paul would later repeat the same thing in Romans 1 when he says, God gave them over to a depraved mind. The idea, however, is that God, who is not the author of evil, is free to use evil to his own ends. That's what the depraved mind is. He will frequently use evil to punish evil. Thirdly, God brings good out of evil. That's what's found in Genesis 50, verse 20, where Joseph tells his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. The context of that verse is the act of Joseph's brothers in which they sold him into slavery. I mean, that was an evil act. But as Joseph reminds us that God intended something in this act, I mean, yes, the brothers acted freely, but God was the final reason why this happened. For if this act hadn't happened, hundreds of thousands of people would have starved to death. The evil act of Joseph's brothers was used by God to save many lives. God, in his freedom, is able to use evil that evil itself plays into God's righteous hands. So let's review. God permits evil, God punishes evil with evil, and God brings good out of evil. And now fourth, God uses evil to both test and discipline those he loves. You know, if I might, this is precisely what Hebrews 12 teaches us, and I will leave this discussion for later in the series, but here let me say this. There's an old adage which says that the same sun that hardens the clay softens the butter. See, the same act, an evil act, can punish the wicked and at the same time shape, test, and discipline, and change a believer to become more holy. I need to stop here and and point out that even while God is not the author of evil, that he is sovereign over evil. It was Martin Luther who said that Satan is none other than the unwilling servant of God. So think about it. Satan, the servant of God, while truly he does not by his will serve God, He doesn't delight to serve God. He seeks to act in such a way that he will not serve God. But that doesn't matter. God so wills it. The same is true of all evil. It serves God not willingly, but by his sovereign design. You know what this does once you've grasped it? It will make you confident in God. It's going to give you a sense of a God who is perfectly in control, who even now is using the most horrifying things And they will serve him, and they will serve righteousness, and they will also be for the good of God's elect. We can't leave this section, however, without noting a fifth element about God's ruling over evil. Remember, he permits evil. He punishes evil with evil. He brings good out of evil. He tests and he disciplines those he loves with evil. And then finally, number five, one day, He will redeem all his people from all evil and destroy the throne of Satan entirely. You can read the story of the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians as a type, an image, if you will, of God's final great day of judgment. 
See, what Habakkuk describes is a foreshadowing of the great day of the Lord when Christ returns and he, not Babylon, is dreaded and fearsome, scoffing at rebels and scoundrels and bringing all to heel under his glorious feet. So we've been talking about conclusions. And we've noticed that our God rules over all, which means he also rules over evil. But we must never forget that God is not evil. In him is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God, we should remember, is both just while he is also loving. It's not that he is at times loving and at other times he's just. It is that at every moment he is both loving and just. See how easy it is for us to stress only one of those things, but when we do, we're not talking about the God of the Bible. So the next time we ask God why he would allow Hitler or Stalin or cancer or earthquakes or war or simply rebellion against God, remember this. He has told you, evil will exist for a day, but the purposes of God and his righteousness will never falter. For those of you who are angry with God, if your anger rises out of your rebellion to his ways, I have no antidote for your anger but to plead with you. Who can fight with God? But if your anger rises out of your anger with evil, then child of God, be patient. For even now, unbeknown to us, God is moving nations in great historical events so that in the end, evil will be utterly defeated. Listen to the hope of the saints found in Revelation 18, verse 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So may it be. John, in some respects, these are difficult words to hear and, and to grasp, but I'm thinking more globally right now. You know, uh, there's so much disturbance around the world, so many wars, so many nations at war, so many groups that uh, just are evil. Is God amongst all that? Yeah, when we say that God rules over the nations, actually, we mean that. So that God right now in sovereignty is directing the affairs of nations so that when the time of judgment comes for a wicked nation, it will come. And so uh, wicked nations need to understand that they will not get away with it. In fact, as they are becoming increasingly more wicked, God is raising up right now another nation that they will encounter and will not let them get away with it. So, you know, it's interesting, and I don't know, I don't intend to, you know, understand all of the workings of God in the world. I know, however, that God is not, you know, set apart from these problems, but God is actively involved with them. So uh, let's uh, be confident that God is always sovereign. Thanks, John. A great word. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and now confirm special friends and musicians Shane and Angela Weeb. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, you'll laugh and be encouraged, and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. The Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Caribbean Cruise is a unique opportunity for connection, and we'd love to see you join us. Come on your own or with family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call 
everything the ship has to offer and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca, laughagain.ca, or call 1-800-663-2425. We can't wait to set sail with you.